And just to kind of give you a brief um, overview of what we're going to be covering in today's topic is, you know, I want to just go over a little bit in terms of a brief history of PTSD, um, what actually qualifies for a diagnosis of PTSD, as well as spend a little time talking about uh, the symptom clusters that are going on. And, um, you know, I'll talk a little bit about changes between the DSM-4, the DSM-5 now uh, that we're at. Also, while I was talking about some assessment tools that are out there that are particularly helpful, as well as looking at some issues in terms of making a differential diagnosis. Okay. Um, briefly talk about some overview of some evidence-based treatments that are currently available uh, for PTSD. And finally, talking about some common problems and issues we find in treatment as well as summarizing some resources for you guys that if you wanted to get some additional information or potential training, you could look at those websites, okay? Right. So in terms of a brief, short history of PTSD, you know, I find it interesting that actually one of the first written accounts of this goes all the way back to 490 BC, if you can believe that or not. You know, um, and of course it was uh, war-related, talking about you know the the kind of psychological symptoms that uh, the warriors actually experienced, and we kind of see this you know consistent throughout the the centuries. You know, is that people would occasionally write about um, these warriors' type of experience, describing uh, some of the the shock, the the dread, you know, uh, the nervousness. Uh, the hyperarousal type symptoms that warriors might experience or being reluctant to go into battle, noticing it. So really, this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. This has been documented throughout the course of time, okay? And even just as some examples there, even in our own Civil War history or war worlds, you know, uh, soldier's heart, exhausted heart, shell shock, you know, we have come to know and see that uh, people can experience a, a variety of symptoms. You know, as official diagnosis, it didn't only become official until 1980 when the DSM-3 um, became a diagnosis. And really what it emphasized is that this is some sort of external event um, that was outside of the regular human experience. So originally when this first became a diagnosis, you know, it was thought along the lines of an anxiety disorder. Okay? But not like someone was just neurotic or anything else like that, that it really stemmed or the symptoms stemmed from some sort of external event, again, outside of that regular human experience. And I think that the thing that's important to kind of know in terms of formulating that diagnosis is really within our career field, we saw kind of a convergence between uh, two main groups of folks. I mean, we had learned from our Vietnam vets, you know, we we're seeing certain symptoms uh, in response to things, but we we're also seeing uh, victims of sexual assault. Um, who are also reporting to have very similar type of symptoms uh, and, and responses. So here you have two very different type of events that are going on, and yet people are reporting uh, very similar uh, symptoms or experiences, which helps us as a, as a field to say, ah, you know what, there might be something to that, okay? And we looked into it and we uh, gave it this label of PTSD. Finally, where we are right now, in terms of a diagnosis in the DSM-5 
You know, um, the PTSD is considered part of the trauma-related disorders and actually um, has gone away from being considered as part of an anxiety-type disorder. And one of the main reasons why there's been this shift um, uh, with PTSD is because sometimes in terms of the symptoms that a person experiences, um, it can not only just be some of the more classic hyperarousal type symptoms, but as you'll see, and we'll go through some slides later, you'll see that there actually can be more of a depressive type response, uh, uh, PTSD, okay? So because there can be more of a range of experiences, and it might not just be more of an anxious presentation, they really kind of moved it away and say, you know what, it belongs kind of in its own separate category of, of diagnosis, more within the, the trauma-related uh, type conditions. So let's just take a few seconds to talk about what qualifies for a PTSD diagnosis, okay? And really, you know, again, you know, there has to be some sort of event that occurs. And again, we're really looking at one of three things here, whether it be actual or threatened death, whether it actually be uh, a serious uh, injury that a person might experience, or uh, sexual violence, you know? And I starred this criteria because in the past, what the DSM would refer to as um, not necessarily explicitly sexual violence, but some threat to your bodily integrity or physical integrity is what they would label that as, okay? And it's important just to, to note that this exposure can uh, occur in a variety of different ways. So a person can directly experience this, okay? It can occur vicariously uh, through witnessing it happening to other individuals. It can be uh, through learning that you come to find out that someone of close importance to you um, uh, experienced something um, that was listed above, okay? Um, or it can be the case that a person might be repeatedly uh, exposed to or have an extreme exposure to uh, some adverse event. And I think a, a good example of this would be like our police officers, okay, who have to respond to suicides, okay? So routinely, as part of their job, you know, whether it be a suicide or whether it be a car accident, you know, they're a first responder and they have to see some things that are uh, oftentimes quite graphic, okay? What's interesting to note, okay, is that within this event, there is a slight change, you know, uh, in the DSM-5, uh, going back from the DSM-4 uh, to TR, that the exposure no longer requires having an intense reaction to fear, to horror, or this sense of helplessness. And I'll tell you that in the military, this is no small change, okay? The inclusion of this criteria in the previous edition of the DSM was quite controversial, uh, particularly from a military perspective because uh, a person could be completely um, uh, symptomatic. They can endorse all the relevant criteria, but if they don't report having that initial intense reaction of fear, of horror, or helplessness, then technically they didn't meet the diagnostic criteria and couldn't be given that diagnosis of, of PTSD, okay? 
And there was a lot of debate behind that because from a cultural standpoint, you know, uh, they're supposed to be trained to be able to respond in intense situations, not necessarily handle those reactions. And so even if they actually did experience some of those feelings, it'd be very hard for them to sometimes open up and actually admit to the fact that they had experienced that. Okay? Again, which means they're not necessarily diagnosed um, uh, with that condition. And sometimes in terms of their own medical record, you know, that can make a big difference uh, for, for some of them. Okay. So switching gears, in terms of focusing a little bit more now on terms of the core symptom clusters. And the first one is re-experiencing type symptoms. Okay. And I didn't put it down there for each of the criteria, okay. but the common theme here is that this is a recurrent symptom that is distressing. Okay, so all these things, recurrent, distressing, and the first one is involuntary or intrusive memories. And these can come not only in terms of thoughts, but it can also be in terms of actual images that a person experiences. Okay, a thing that oftentimes people associate with re-experiencing type symptoms for PTSD is nightmares. Having these reoccurring uh, uh, dreams. Okay, that specifically have content or affect in the dream, the nightmare, related back to the actual trauma itself. Okay. Uh, then we have also dissociative type reactions or flashbacks. And I'd like to just to take a few seconds on this piece. Because a lot of times I think that the term flashback gets used a lot and inappropriately so. Okay. So people will often talk about the fact that they're actually experiencing flashbacks when they really mean to say is that they're having uh, that first symptom that's listed, that recurrent, distressive, involuntary, or intrusive memory that's coming back to them either in a thought or an image. When we're really talking about a flashback, we're really talking about that uh, dissociative type of experience, meaning that a person is actively reliving um, uh, something that had occurred uh, in relation to that trauma and no longer is uh, present really in the here and now but is transported back and um, I've actually had the opportunity um, to see someone actually ex actively experiencing a flashback and this was a combat medic who, um, who had uh, several challenging experiences and was walking out in a parking lot um, and something triggered or activated him and he was actively acting out like he was uh, trying to load bodies uh, on a helicopter. Okay? So where I was, I could actively see that what the person was doing did not make sense you know, uh, for the location that they were at. And again, when the person finally came to or realized you know, what was going on, didn't have necessarily the memory of what took place uh, previously. Okay? And what I would tell you is, is that this criteria of actually having a flashback is uh, much more rare for individuals to actually be experiencing. And oftentimes for myself, clinically, if I really do see someone who's actually having uh, the flashback symptoms, often in terms of the severity of their condition, uh, probably much more significant. Uh, than a person who's not necessarily experienced that uh, disassociation. Okay. Uh, the last two criteria 
you know, intense or prolonged uh, distress or emotional reaction caused any internal or external reminders, as well as uh, physiological response to any external or internal reminders. So just for example, on my last base that I was working at, we had uh, the F-22s, the fighter planes, okay? And so when they would uh, do the sonic booms, um, people on base uh, would cover a little bit. Some of them would actually hit the ground uh, occasionally. And base leadership would be wandering around like, you know, what, what the heck are these guys' problem? This is the sound of freedom. You know, we should, we should be proud of that, you know? Um, until it was explained to them that actually, you know, that sonic boom sound is actually identical to an incoming mortar round. Um, so if you've ever deployed and you hear that noise, that's usually not a good thing, okay? Uh, and so they were able to kind of appreciate the fact that, you know, certain noises um, have um, produced now certain reactions for folks. And the thing here is, in terms of actually meeting the diagnostic criteria for this condition or disorder, is really you have to just have one of those five met, okay? Most commonly, you'll a lot of times see them having the, at least the intrusive thoughts or images uh, that are coming back, and a lot of times the emotional and physical uh, reactions here to reminders, okay? Um, the next symptom cluster is avoidance symptoms, okay? And there's been some changes to this. Um, on my next slide, um, I highlighted what was once used to be considered under this category from the DSM-4-TR to now the DSM-5. But basically, you know, what we're talking about here is people seeking to avoid any memories, thoughts, or feelings related to the trauma, you know? Seeking to avoid, you know, um, any external reminders of the trauma. Okay, and oftentimes this is the case, you know, if a person experiences something negative, it's a very natural response that we want to avoid. We don't necessarily want to deal with it, okay? But what we know clinically about uh, folks who experience trauma and develop symptoms of PTSD, that this avoidance is really a maladaptive coping, me uh, coping mechanism, okay? It actually, their avoidance is really the thing that allows those symptoms to continue to persist, okay? And what happens is that through a person's uh, attempts to avoid, they kind of create this false sense of self-efficacy or uh, try to establish some sort of sense of control when they're feeling that emotionally um, uh, they're not experiencing uh, that uh, control with their symptoms that they're experiencing. So. For this, in terms of the avoidance symptoms, uh, one of two criteria must be met for the diagnosis. So one of the new additions in terms of uh, criteria or symptom clusters as things have been arranged is this negative alterations in cognitive and mood. Okay? So the things that I've asterisked on, on here in terms of symptoms were things that were typically included back in, under the avoidance symptom cluster. So I'll just kind of start there first. So the inability to remember an important aspect of event, okay? And this is often really significant in terms of the treatment type process because, you know, um, what a person can recall about the event um, has huge implications, and I'll give you an example using uh, survivor guilt as an example. I was working with a person who um, they were 
uh, going from point A to point B in a dangerous location, um, and they got pinned down in a, in a firefight, and um, uh, one of uh, the soldier's uh, close friends w was killed, okay? Um, and he was having a lot of survivors guilt about, hey, why did I make it through while this person was killed in this situation scenario? Well, it only turned out that he actually really blamed himself for this person's death because he had helped try to pull this person and get behind a vehicle, okay? And what he was telling himself about that event was actually very different from what had actually happened. But that was only discovered by him actually really uh, focusing on that event, trying to actually process what happened, getting collateral information to really see you know, what had taken place there in that event. And that was actually able to um, provide a huge amount of relief for this individual. So no longer now, um, because he's better able to recall the events of a particularly um, dangerous situation, um, it went from, I feel like I killed my friend, to he actually had pulled his friend to the best of his ability to, to safety, but when his buddy actually uh, stood up by his own self, he got hit by sniper fire. Okay? Still a sad event, but that's a huge world of difference between blaming yourself for something versus being able to realize that you were actually uh, helping in a situation. Um, diminished interest in participation in significant activities. Oftentimes for folks who are experiencing um, this level of anxiety, um, they feel like it takes a lot of energy to uh, maintain uh, a certain presence, to act like nothing's really bothering them. Okay? And so what commonly then happens is they stop giving up on doing and engaging activities. Why? Because it really simply, it's just like, you know, they're perpetually running a marathon. It takes too much energy and effort to always try to keep on that poker face. So it's just a lot easier to not do things, okay? Um, feeling detached or estranged from others. Okay. Uh, persistently inability to experience um, positive emotions. And then we see some of these um, other criteria that I didn't asterisk, which are kind of more of a new um, inclusion in the new DSM-5, realizing that people oftentimes when they um, have this condition um, have persistent or exaggerated negative beliefs about oneself, others, the world. You know, a trauma event can often do that. It often has a profound effect on the way you view yourself, others, or the world. Persistent or exaggerated cognitions about the cause or consequence of the actual trauma, whether it be blaming themselves or others in terms of their responsibility for those events. Okay. Um, and oftentimes, uh, engaging in a persistent negative emotional state. Now, I know that uh, amongst us uh, in, the, in the professional community, sometimes we're talking about the fact that, you know, uh, for folks who have a post-traumatic stress disorder, a lot of times we can see secondary depression symptoms. And when we really look at the symptom cluster, you know, there's a lot there that actually overloads with depression. You know? So sometimes we're talking about, you know, uh, if they're meeting all this criteria, do we really give a person a secondary depression diagnosis? Or you know, we're just you know, highlighting it and noticing these, um, these factors within the context of a PTSD diagnosis. And within this, again, two or more criteria must be met for the actual diagnosis. Hyperarousal symptoms. 
So these things include, you know, potential increase in irritability. Um, this is a, a new criteria, the reckless or self-destructive behavior. I will tell you as a clinician, in particular working with the military, I feel that a thorough assessment is not done if this is not evaluated and assessed for. Okay? And I'll tell you that um, we have had more deaths of military personnel through motor vehicle accidents that has been attributed to this phenomenon than people killed in action by foreign enemies. Okay? So it is not insignificant. And it's a very important, whether it might be uh, the driving for a lot of military people, it can be actually uh, uh, aggression, uh, going out, getting into fights. It can be a form of hypersexuality um, without uh, regard to um, safe sex. Um, uh, hypervigilance, you know, on edge. Uh, people patrolling their home, you know, uh, locking the doors, uh, checking it multiple times, uh, doing other safety procedures, uh, whether, you know, they feel like um, they have to have a, a weapon on them at all times for their own personal safety. You see a lot of different ways that this uh, vigilance. I was working with one gentleman who, as part of his treatment, we actually had to allow him to let his family members be outside of his arm's reach at the grocery store. Okay, that that's how, like, he had to be in control and, and monitor everything to make sure that uh, they were safe and he was safe. Exaggerated style response. You know, these are the people that you sometimes don't necessarily just want to sneak up on, especially some of our military vets. You know, so routinely with the exaggerated startle response, you know, you have to assess sometimes for safety concerns, like, do they have children in the house? You know, uh, children are not always going to necessarily know, uh, you know, and think about these things about, you know, hey, it might not be good to approach somebody like that. You know, they're just going to play, they're going to come up to them. You know, those are things that you have to, to be careful of. Uh, and look out for. Problems with concentration, being able to focus, and sleep disturbance. Okay? And again, for these criteria, oftentimes, you know, two or more uh, uh, have to be met for, in order to, to receive the diagnosis. So some other just uh, general considerations and sometimes uh, things that we have to, to clarify if they're present or not. So one of the things that's important to notice and differentiates PTSD from acute stress disorder is the amount of time that a person is experiencing the symptoms. So here we're talking that you know, it has to be at least over a month that the person experiences those symptoms. I think it's also important just to note that just because a person is exposed to something that we might consider potentially traumatic does not necessarily mean that they'll go on to develop these symptoms or not. Okay? A lot of times people have their own ways of uh, becoming uh, resilient and, and working through that, okay? But it's where we see if these symptoms continue to persist or not resolving that we really think not only does the condition exist, but there are folks who are really going to actually need to get some form of formal treatment for their condition. It also signifies, you know, we have to specify, you know, whether the PTSD um, is accompanied with any dissociative type of symptoms, whether that be depersonalization, uh, a person is feeling like they're just constantly um, some sort of outside observer watching themselves go through uh, their experience, uh, derealization, uh, the world is kind of unreal in a dreamlike state. 
Uh, we have to notice whether or not um, there's a delayed expression. So sometimes, I'll give you an example in the military context because I think it's, it's the easiest for me to conceptually describe it, is, is that you know, when you're in a deployed location, you're so focused on just you know, accomplishing the mission, do what you need to do to um, be safe and everything else like that, sometimes you don't have the time to think. So what happens? By the time you come home, you're able to relax a little bit, you're now kind of more in maybe a safer environment, you start to look through and, and maybe better able to process a little bit what happens, you know, uh, symptoms then can uh, emerge and, and, and creep up on folks, okay? So it's not uncommon that, you know, we, we can see that. Any point in time when they've actually had the time to not be so busy distracting themselves uh, or so involved with different work tasks, we can see the symptoms uh, pop up. The other thing that I would tell you, you know, when we're looking at children, you know, uh, for six years or younger, you know, sometimes how we might see these actual symptoms uh, come out is uh, it will usually uh, emerge in, in the way that they play, okay? So how they're playing, how they're interacting with their, their play items, you might see them uh, reenacting certain themes or certain things that can indicate or alert you that that's what they're experiencing. So in terms of assessment type tools, um, really um, a good clinical interview is still considered one of our best ways to assess um, and diagnose this condition. In particular, what's referred to as the gold standard is the clinician administered PTSD scale or CAPS. Okay? Um, and that's somewhat similar to the, to the SCID, the structured clinical interview uh, for the DSM-IV, uh, the PTSD module. You know, uh, they'll need to update it to match the uh, uh, DSM-5 criteria. <laughs> but again, it's a very structured interview. So instead of you just kind of um, going through and asking your own questions that you might think of, uh, is important, it's a very scripted interview. So if a person asks or answers a question in the affirmative, then it has a set series of response questions, okay? Um, there are also a variety of symptom checklists or other tools. Uh, one of the main ones is just uh, the PCLC for civilians or the PCLM for military. And basically what it is, is it's just a uh, symptom checklist that is strictly based on the criteria of the, the, the DSM, okay? So a person will uh, endorse whether they experience any of those symptoms to not at all, to extremely. And then we usually look at cutoff scores. So for civilians, if your score is higher than 30, you know, um, uh, that's usually indicative of someone who might be meeting that actual diagnosis or criteria, you know. And I see, yes, we have little power issues. Or for military, just as an example, if it is uh, a cutoff score higher than 50, you know, um, that's again kind of more in the clinically significant range. And we know that for those folks that we need to um, uh, really look at the diagnosis for um, PTSD. So um, in terms of um, utilizing the, the MMPI, they do have a clinical scale that can assess you know, PTSD-related symptoms. However, what I would say is, is that um, the whole um, MMPI, just to get at uh, certain items that are related to uh, PTSD, um, is probably not the most efficient way um, to actually go about and assessing it. It's important to realize that it is there, and um, they also um, have 
other um, assessment scales, but really the, the ones that are uh, best are, are usually the, the ones that we were just talking about, the, the PCLC or the PCLM. And so very quick, it usually takes less than about five or ten minutes to, to complete. And it's often used as a tool uh, through a lot of the standard treatment protocols or evidence-based treatment protocols that we would continue to use that as a way to assess a person's progress actually through treatment to see you know, how things are improving or, or getting better for an individual. So in terms of differential diagnosis, there's definitely some things um, uh, to consider or some key aspects to identifying PTSD. So why would I give somebody a PTSD diagnosis versus like an adjustment disorder diagnosis? Okay, Because a person potentially with an adjustment uh, disorder diagnosis could both experience a potentially traumatic event through which they develop some symptoms. Okay. Well, the key differentiation between an adjustment disorder or why I would give someone a PTSD diagnosis is really here that the, the very first bullet underneath that is that a person for the PTSD diagnosis needs to meet the minimum criteria in all the symptom clusters. Okay, so that would be you know the re-experiencing symptom clusters, that would be the avoidance, the negative cognitions, and the hyperarousal type symptoms. Okay. And if they're consistently meeting at least the minimum criteria, they're not going to be meeting their criteria for other um, diagnoses or considered. It'd be more appropriate to give them the PTSD diagnosis. A key other thing to consider conceptually when diagnosing somebody is really that the fact that their symptoms are specifically related to the actual trauma itself. Okay. So a person might have other type of symptoms, but if it's not related back to the actual trauma itself, there might be another condition that is going on for them, but it's just that, that that's not related to or in, in conjunction with the uh, actual PTSD. And then, obviously, the duration of symptoms. So we already said, you know, the difference between acute stress disorder versus PTSD is the length of time. So for acute stress disorder, it's less than a month. For PTSD, it's more than a month. Okay. So switching gears a little bit, in terms of talking, okay, um, great, now we know uh, how to potentially assess someone for PTSD. Um, now what do we do with that actual individual? I'll say, at least within the military context, one of the other assessment pieces that we oftentimes have to deal with is whether or not uh, a person has secondary gain behind seeking a diagnosis of PTSD. Okay, And there can be a lot of reasons for that. A person might feel that uh, if they have a diagnosis of PTSD or if they've been deployed, you know, then uh, in terms of a problem or issue at work, maybe uh, things would go easier on them. You know, hey, I have this mental health condition. You know, I have some uh, mitigating circumstances. You know, um, I shouldn't necessarily receive uh, an extremely harsh punishment. Also, from a disability standpoint, you know, um, uh, by law. You know, if a person has PTSD and they're not able to continue to function in the military, uh, it is an automatic disability rating of 50%, okay, which is not insignificant. Um, and so really sometimes, too, we have to assess and, and look out and, and make sure that really um, 
a person uh, actually has a diagnosis and um, is, is motivated uh, for treatment. So the first um, evidence-based treatment uh, for PTSD that I will go over is more from uh, uh, cognitive processing therapy, okay? And it's based on uh, social cognitive theory, okay? And what it says is, is that, you know, uh, we as individuals, we have these core schemas, these core beliefs about these certain areas of our life, such as trust, safety, esteem, intimacy, power, uh, that is often adversely affected by PTSD. And by this, you know, what we're, we're talking about is uh, when people are trying to make sense out of their experiences, you know, they try to see whether or not they can assimilate that new experience uh, with their old beliefs. And sometimes they can't, you know. Um, and so either they, uh, a lot of times then, uh, over-accommodate their new experience, um, either by getting rid of all their old previous beliefs, or maybe they have had some other faulty pre-existing beliefs that are now just really amplified in terms of being overly cynical or overly negative or overly anxious about themselves, others, or the world. Okay. And so really, in terms of conceptualizing um, the condition of PTSD uh, from a CPT standpoint, is that really that a person is stuck. Okay. And a person is stuck because uh, from a cognitive standpoint, um, they are um, not able to really integrate this new data uh, from that trauma in a way that allows them to uh, function effectively. Okay, so part of the treatment and interventions is it's really based on cognitive therapy. Really looking at, um, you know, as they write down their, their narrative about what had happened to them and to their experience, we're really paying close attention to the things about, okay, well, what are they telling themselves about that experience? You know, what meaning, so to speak, are they making out of that experience? Or what are they telling themselves about the meaning of that uh, trauma? Okay. Um, what are they telling themselves about some of these core schemas that they have in, in their life? Okay. And then is that adaptive or is that maladaptive for them? And if it's maladaptive, then, you know, it's important for us to take the time to go through and, and help to process that. And so, you know, this is a structured, manualized treatment, you know, standard 12 sessions, and I kind of just broke it down in terms of the different phases, you know, what we're doing at each point with a person. So initially, you would provide some basic education to them about, you know, what are some of the common reactions to, to trauma, you know, um, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, the, the cognitive theory behind the treatment, as well as outlaying for them, you know, what would... Uh, uh, go through this, this as a treatment process. Oftentimes giving them some relaxation skills so that they'd be able to work through some of those difficult moments. Um, and then really start working on um, talking about that meaning making already, asking them to write kind of an impact statement. Talking about not necessarily going into gross details about you know what it, they experienced or occurred, but really just asking them to say, okay, you know what, what if any meaning um, uh, do you take away from this event happening in your life? And how has this event then changed the way that you might have viewed yourself or others of the future? Okay. To really start this understanding that this trauma in some way, shape, or form has affected them, at the very least, you know, uh, from a cognitive perspective. But we know that our cognitions um, don't just uh, stay there, that they often have 
an impact on our behaviors and on our emotional responses. Yeah. One of the other uh, major treatment modalities uh, is a prolonged exposure type therapy. And this kind of comes from uh, a theory of emotional processing theory. Okay. And basically what this theory is talking about is the fact that we learn uh, through a series of associations. Okay. And what is happening to a person who has uh, PTSD is their fear network is getting inappropriately activated because they've made uh, uh, an association and now have overgeneralized it. So there are some uh, classic cl uh, conditioning principles that are at play here. Okay. So if we think about it, you know, uh, you know if a person associates uh, loud noise with bad outcome, and in the military we could understand that, you know, from a deployed location, large noise might mean incoming round, which could result in physical injury or death. That's bad. So now, when they're home in a more safe environment, um, their bodies, their minds are still uh, trained to react in a way that large or, um, noises or loud noises um, equal bad. Okay. And, and part of that then in terms of, of, of treatment is helping to expose people to certain situations and scenarios to help retrain the brain, so to speak, so that they can um, understand what is the appropriate um, uh, threat level, a threat response, you know, so that it's not overestimated, okay? Um, and that's really, um, in terms of interventions, what we do from a cognitive behavioral uh, standpoint you know, we have and we force the person to, you know, revisit their, um, their trauma experiences, often through uh, tape recording it uh, for the individual, so they can actually hear themselves talking about uh, the situation scenario. And then what they'll have to do is, between sessions or treatment, is they'll have to listen to themselves uh, talk about that trauma, okay? Uh, then we talk about in vivo exposure. So if the reaction uh, to the traumatic event is causing them problems, so they're avoiding large crowds, or they don't want to go to the store, you know, um, they don't want to really socialize with people, then we are actively forcing themselves to uh, face these challenging situations. And part of the reason is, is that, you know, when a person has kind of an anxiety response, what happens is the anxiety will go up, okay, it'll hit a peak, and then it will eventually go back down. Our bodies are not meant to sustain this anxiety level, you know, at a high level indefinitely. Okay? But what happens to people is as the anxiety goes up, it might not even necessarily hit its peak, they avoid. They hit the eject button. They run away. They, they do whatever they can to then avoid that situation. And unfortunately then what happens is that fear, that anxiety, what they're telling themselves remains intact. And they don't able to, to see, you know what, this is not so bad. The end of the world is not going to occur. I can do this. Okay. And it's a very uh, a strong component of treatment. Um, kind of like with the cognitive processing therapy, often, you know, we at least teach them one kind of relaxation skill. So as we're pushing them to confront their anxiety or to quote unquote face their fears, you now they at least have uh, somewhat of a tool to, to help themselves to, to manage their mood while they're under uh, those uh, trying circumstances. And again, we educate them about uh, common reactions to trauma. You know, one of the important things about educating people behind their, their symptoms and what's going on there is it really accomplishes kind of two things. 
One, it helps to normalize their experience. A lot of times people who are, are encountering these symptoms can really feel like, you know what, what's happening to me? I feel like I don't have control anymore. I feel like I'm going insane. I feel like I'm going crazy. Okay? So to be able to, to, to describe it and say, you know what, no, this is what we know tends to happen to people, you know, physiologically, cognitively, in response to these certain events, can be very helpful to knowing that they're not crazy, they're not the only one out there that is experiencing this stuff, okay? And that there's a ways to uh, address uh, their symptoms as well. Okay. So in terms of common issues that one might face in treatment, you know, avoidance is huge. Um, with a lot of times before even going through one of the evidence-based treatment uh, uh, protocols with an individual, we talked about even contracting with them, you know, realizing that, hey, you know what, this treatment is, a, this is what it's going to entail, this is what it's going to involve, okay. But we often see things such as like they'll miss appointments, they won't necessarily complete all the homework assignments, you know, or they'll for, uh, forget to bring it in and always have an excuse for why not. Or they'll try to raise up other issues so we're no longer focusing on uh, doing the, the treatment that is, is laid out in the protocol. Again, the treatment is, is very structured, so it's very easy to see if things are going off course, so to speak, or if they're taking you there. Okay. Um, the other thing can be activation of symptoms during exposure. So when people have been avoiding things for so long, okay, and now all of a sudden, they're forced to really think about it, to write about it, to listen to it, to find ways to challenge their anxiety, okay? Um, and there's a tendency to actually see them, at least on a short-term basis, to maybe become more symptomatic as they're working through that. And that's okay. It's important to be able to explain that and say, you know, yes, that's a natural phenomenon that does and can occur, but that's okay because now what we're doing is we're actively dealing with this problem and issue. So the way I like to explain it to folks is just, for example, you know, what is more convenient to potentially deal with this problem while you're awake and alert and can actually process this? Or wait till you try to go to sleep and now it's coming out in your dreams, you know, and you're having a difficulty, uh, 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 you know, uh, falling asleep, right? So most people can realize that, hey, you know what, you're right about that, Dr. Rogers, you know, uh, it makes a little bit more sense to focus on this when I have the, the mental capabilities to, to work through this and, and to address it, okay? Uh, sometimes uh, what can be difficult is selecting a starting point if a person has multiple traumas. So whether that be uh, combat related, whether it's, you know, uh, a history of abuse that a person has experienced, either as a child or maybe through a, a relationship that they've had. Um, so oftentimes, what I will tell a person is, um, we often have clues as to where we need to start. And a lot of times, those clues come through the re-experiencing symptoms, okay? So the nightmares, those intrusive thoughts and images, okay? Those are often the things, that the triggers, the reminders, you know, those are often the clue of saying, you know what, this is really what your body, your mind is still trying to make sense out of. So you know what, why don't we start there first? And sometimes people can get really bogged down in this and worry about, well, you know, maybe, maybe this one or maybe that one is the one that I should start with. In all reality, what I'll tell people is, is that, you know what, what's more important is that we just start with one, 
you know, you'll learn the skills and the tools to go through that. And once you go through that experience, you know, uh, we can use those same skills and tools and apply it to other issues that you might have experienced. It's very common when going through treatment with people that they might start with one scenario and then after they realize it's safe and they're able to maybe handle a more sanitized version that they actually come clean and say, you know what, actually that's not really the thing that keeps me up at night. This is really the, the, the situation or scenario that, that really, really bothers me. Okay, so sometimes it's a process, but that's true in any type of counseling relationship that sometimes people right out of the gate don't necessarily always fully disclose everything that's going on and can occur as they begin to trust you more and open up more, okay. And family member issues. So in the presentation earlier um, today, I talked a little bit about this. Um, and so what I've noticed uh, can intend to be very effective is including family members in the earlier stages of treatment. So I want family members to know about what are some of the common reactions to trauma. I want family members to know, you know, uh, what does this treatment entail? What are they embarking on? You know, um, oftentimes when a person experiences a trauma, uh, they might be very reluctant to share details uh, with other people in their family. You know, am I going to burden them? Would they be able to handle it? Okay. And on the flip side, sometimes I have family members come in very early in the session because I want to address any potential issues of jealousy. Um, you know what? Why can you tell your therapist this, but you know you, you won't be willing to talk to me about it? Okay. You know I'm not a replacement for that spouse or the important role that they have, but my job and my focus is help them to work through the, this this trauma. You know, and um, in terms of being able to share and open up, you know, a lot of that is at that person's comfortability level, okay? You know, and helping families, members to sometimes to work through that as, as a potential issue. The other thing that I've noticed a lot of times in treatment of trauma-related conditions is that, you know, this involves sometimes some exposure-related assignments, you know? And so sometimes family members can be helpful or less helpful with that. So sometimes they might be like, you know what, that person has gone through so much, you know, we don't think you have to do this. Well, unfortunately, then that just plays right into the avoidance, and that just oftentimes just plays right into the maintenance of their actual symptoms. And the person, a lot of times, will not get better. Okay? Or sometimes I've seen family members go gung-ho in terms of really trying to push somebody past the point that they were ready to do. Okay? So when you're um, uh, working through and helping someone to challenge some anxiety or, or difficulties in their life, it's important that you know, there's an appropriate pacing uh, that occurs for them. So they can have some success experience that can build the confidence, but not that they're overreaching it, because sometimes that can set people back. So a lot of times I'll tell family members, okay, you know, you should, you should ask, hey, what, what's my homework assignment? What am I working on? What's this session particularly focusing on? So they can still feel a part of the process, but they know uh, what to push and what not to push. So, you know, have you completed the homework assignment or have you not, you know? as well as letting the, the family members know that, you know, that's part of my job also to check in with them. So they don't have to necessarily always feel responsible for that level of care of peace, okay, because that can create some other tension or conflict. So here are some wonderful uh, resources in regards to um, PTSD. So the first one is the National Center for PTSD. Uh, that's through the, the VA website. They always have great links um, about information for not only uh, service members, uh, families uh, as well. Uh, the next link that I have 
is uh, specifically you can get training on doing the CPT protocol, uh, going through each of the structured sessions and learning, you know, what is that like uh, if you'd want to, to go ahead and to do that. Um, uh, this other uh, website I put down there for the PTSD training that not only talks about like a PE training that you can do the prolonged exposure, but it also talks again about CPT and uh, some other interventions as well. And lastly, um, the Defense Center for Excellence for Psychological Health and TBI. Um, I put that on there. Uh, there's a military component there, but um, everything that they put out is just of excellent quality, top notch. You know, um, they have a lot of uh, information for family members, friends, people who might be dealing with either veterans or people who have certain uh, conditions like the post-traumatic stress disorder. Great resources also for professionals. So um, it's an excellent resource. So just to summarize, you know, we talked a little bit about the brief history of PTSD, the fact that this is not a new phenomenon, that this has been around um, ever since uh, war or conflict. Uh, human life sometimes just feels like, you know, there are uh, traumatic events that can occur. We also talked about what qualifies uh, for a diagnosis of PTSD. Uh, we then spent some more time on the specific symptom clusters and what's included in that, as well as changes from the DSM-IV-TR to the DSM-V. We also spent time talking about some assessment tools, as well as uh, differential diagnosis stuff, as well as then focusing on uh, some evidence-based treatments. So now what do we do with people after we have assessed and realized that they have PTSD? And then we talked about some common problems um, and issues in treatment and how you can address that, as well as resources for further information.